0: We have a new free book for Human Action Podcast listeners, Dr. Guido Holzman's How Inflation Destroys Civilization. Learn how inflation isn't only making us poorer, it's harming our culture, mental well-being, and the moral foundations of civilization itself. Get your free copy today at mises.org slash HAPod free. While the government tries to hide the consequences of inflation in their official statistics, Americans see and feel it every day. Join the Mises Institute in Tampa on February 17th for our first event of 2024. We'll discuss inflation, its causes, consequences, and cure. Tom DiLorenzo, Joe Salerno, and Patrick Newman will uncover the state's deceit to reveal inflation for what it really is deliberate debasement of the dollar to create winners and losers. Sign up now at mises.org Tampa 2024 and use code ACTION24 for 15% off admission. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Joe,
1: welcome to the Human Action Podcast.
2: I'm happy to be here, Bob. Thanks for inviting me. Sure
1: thing. So you had recently relayed to me uh, a paper that you had written, I guess was it a talk too, that for the uh, Mises Supporters Summit. So maybe first just explain what the Supporters Summit is and then maybe get into how you chose your topic.
2: Uh, The Mises Supporters Summit is um, a gathering, uh, a conference held for members and donors uh, of the Mises Institute, as as well as the associated academics. Uh, So it's a broad audience. And um, so I wanted to bring to their attention uh, the fact that uh, something that they may have heard and and, and is continuously beamed at us through the media, and that is that there's really only two approaches to monetary policy. Uh, One is discretion and the other is rules and th- these um these opposite positions uh take place uh, or are are held by econ- you know economists but they they also impinge on on how monetary policy is run and on and, and which affects the, uh, the the populace at large maybe so, Joe if
1: I could stop you just for a second just to I'll chime in yeah, so, yeah, what? yeah, yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, because I, so I, folks, I got my degree from NYU. I was there from 98 to 2003. And what Joe was talking about was definitely orthodoxy at that point. And then and, and the program, even though there was the Austrian fellowship, as you know, Joe, yes. the, the standard program I went through was, I, I guess they called it New Keynesian. Right. And, you know, and the, the big, you know, Mark Gertler was a huge macro guy there and some mm-hmm. others, heavy hitters in that vein. And yet we were taught, Matter of factly, that oh, yeah, so and so had. I don't remember what the seminal papers were in this genre, but the idea being that oh, there's a you know, there's a ultimately, at least in the short run, a trade off between unemployment and inflation. But they did come to realize that oh, yes, that so called Phillips curve can move around, and so like you couldn't just continually have unemployment be at one percent. And inflation not be too bad, that over time, to keep unemployment at 1%, if it was below the natural rate, you know, the, the inflation, by which they mean consumer price inflation, would 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 keep getting higher and higher as people are, came to expect it and adapt it and blah, blah, blah. And so they said the way you can uh, exp- or improve that trade off is if you pre commit ahead of time to a bunch of rules. So what, what ends up happening is if you had dis- a discretionary policy, that means at any given moment, the central bankers get together. And they decide, oh, here's what the situation looks like, right? By adjusting uh, the levers of how much money we pump into the credit right. markets and our target, blah, blah blah, we can achieve this much unemployment, but at the cost of this much inflation we'd have to tolerate. But if ahead of time they come in and say, no, no, no in the moment, if the rule says, uh, you know, if unemployment's like this, then we can do such and such. But if inflation gets above this level, we gotta we gotta tighten. Sorry, even though it's going to cause pain. Right. If everybody knows that going into it and believes it. Then actually, that trade off, the alleged trade off between inflation and unemployment, is better than it otherwise would have been, and hence they they gain the benefits of pre commitment, and that's why they say uh, central bankers after the eighty, you know, after the early eighties experience, yes. uh, th- like they they wanted to um, inculcate in the public this reputation of toughness, like oh, those central bankers, yeah. they don't care about the unemployed, they just they want to protect the currency, and that that actually was good for the workers. Yeah, that, that was the, the word
2: that. they yeah. use. The word credibility. They yeah. wanted to establish credibility, um, and that that this rule is a credible rule. They're not going to depart from it because of high rates of unemployment, um, yeah. and and that. I mean that so that that's the the argument for having a rule that it makes the, as you said it makes the trade off better.
1: Okay, so, so with that context, then now you're weighing in on this uh, familiar yeah, so, trope, I guess.
2: Yeah, so what I, um, I, I thought about was that um, ideology doesn't play any, any part in this whatsoever. The ideas that people hold uh, about how um, uh, you know, against or for inflation. So when um, I, I looked around for some recent episode in which discretion actually was practiced, but in a way that was anti-inflationary. So I, folk, uh, I, I found that during the Eisenhower administration, we had very, very good performance, both with inflation and unemployment and, and, and growth to some extent. And that, you know, looking back from, from, from our perspective now, that was one of the, the um, best periods as far as macroeconomic results are concerned in the U.S. And I looked at a number of different um, uh economic historians um mcclanahan and becker who are sort of revisionists who um were more or less conservative historians and and they they uh, uh, lauded um eisenhower um even middle of the road historians sort of monetarists thought he did a, a good job as well as even a left-wing historian historian anthony campagna so i went and i looked a little bit more closely at what, what eisenhower had done and um it's interesting, the Republican Party had been extremely ideological um, coming into the 1950s. The old right still had its hand uh, in the party. It still had weight and influence. Um, so you had Robert Taft. Now, he, he did lose the nomination to Eisenhower. Some people would even claim it was stolen from him, um, and Elections Eisenhower- are not stolen and neither are nominations, Joe, come on. <laughs> not right. in this country. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry uh, <laughs> for, the, for the, the heresy there. But, um, so, but Eisenhower was a proponent of what was called modern republicanism, mm-hmm. which was moderate New Deal. He wasn't going to repeal the New Deal, and he was going to um, actively fight against any catastrophic depression. But yet Eisenhower still held an extreme anti-inflationist ideology, which came from the old right. And he was also very pro, um, uh, not only balanced budget, but running surpluses and paying off the debt. And he campaigned on on that. Um, Evidently, during the 1940s, he was very, very... um, Impressed about how bad inflation can um, hurt both the economy and and, and 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 just regular citizens, and also undermine government programs to some extent. So was this just campaign rhetoric? And looking a little deeper, I saw that in fact it was not. I mean, he stood behind what he said. Um, he appointed uh, so, and you could see this in two ways. One way was his the advisors and policymakers he chose. So he appointed Arthur Burns, the, the, the uh, head of the uh, Council for Economic Advisors, in his first term. And at that time, even though Burns went on to become the, the, the most inflationary Fed chairman of the 20th century, Burns was extremely anti-inflationary and anti-Keynesianism, and very vocally so. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so, so B- B- Burns wrote a book after he, um, a, f- a few years after he left the administration, after the first term, um, and in that book, he he laid out his his views and and and, and re- reflected what he had done in, in Eisenhower's first term. But um, he was ag- against any sort of creeping inflation, even a one percent increase. He showed that a one percent increase would would um, cut the the value of the monetary unit by you know twenty to thirty percent in in, in twenty five years. Um, and so. Bar- can Bar- i just stop you
1: for one second sure go ahead
2: Is a, a real quick observation on that no, go ahead it uh, i'm i'm still I, I can't believe
1: that they by which i mean i guess the keynesians have gotten yes. away with defining price stability to mean prices only go up two percent a year Yeah, like that's that's where we are right now where that's like the definition of stable prices means the dollar only against consumer goods only loses two percent a year give or take and then even they've refined it too and say oh what we mean is the Personal consumption expenditures on non-volatile, you know, essential core items, blah blah, blah. Yeah. <laughs> and so you know, excluding food and gas and things like that. But anyway, just so I'm glad you you said that. That no, it, like when people talk about like the uh Excel and all that, and, and the natural rate, like yeah, 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 In his framework, to say what interest rate is consistent with stable prices, you know, I would I would chime in and say no, he actually meant stable prices. He didn't mean <laughs> a predictable rate of decline in <laughs> rising right, power.
2: Right. That all came about in, in, uh, under Greenspan in the mm-hmm. early, early 2000s when, when um, they were talking about uh, when Greenspan sort of fanned the flames of deflation phobia. Mm-hmm. That He just came out one day with a speech. Actually, um, it was Bernanke who was the assistant chairman of, of the Fed before that um, – Rather, the vice chair, I I think Bernanke was the vice chairman, but he was on on the board of governors. But Bernanke gave a a speech in, in, um, I think it was November 2002, in which he brought up this idea that that deflation was devastating and that to prevent deflation, there had to be a positive rate of inflation. Mm -hmm. And then Greenspan, a few months later, gave this famous talk um, in January to to a bunch of businessmen. and in which he pushed this whole idea that we have to have a sort of a positive rate of of inflation. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, so sorry, I, I interrupted you. You're telling the story. Burns was committed to, you know, saying even one percent inflation in the long yes. run.
2: Look at what that does to the dollar's strength and yes, so yes. forth. <clears throat> and if, so Burns resigned to go back to academia in in after the first term. And <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, Raymond Sonnier was then appointed as the chair of the CEA. And he he was a very interesting guy. He um, was an economist who wrote a a book in the 1930s on business cycle theory. It was very, very probing, very, very um, wide ranging. And and he covered a lot of business cycle theorists, including Hayek and Keynes. And he was a very conservative and very, very anti-inflationary. He said that... uh, 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 inflation can never be a policy of government that um, any inflation um, uh, undermines people's uh, undermines the credibility of the government. And so he, he was really pushing for surpluses because he said the government has to indicate through its actions, not just through some, some verbiage that it was committed to anti-inflation. And the way to do that was to consistently run surpluses and pay down the national debt, which fit perfectly with what Eisenhower was saying during his campaign And, um, Eisenhower did run a few years of surpluses. Um, and in, in his second term, Eisenhower became much more anti-inflationary. Um, he, uh, he, he began to, to, to cut the the, the Pentagon budget. He cut in half the number of nuclear, um, aircraft carriers that the Navy was building. He reduced the the, uh, force, the Pentagon reduced the amount of missiles they were ordering and, and so forth. And not only that, um, he he also reappointed twice william McCh- mcchesby martin who was as the chairman of the fed and 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 at and, and at that time for the first 10 years um even though he was originally pu- appointed by um truman martin was uh, very very anti-inflation okay later on uh, under kennedy and and Johnson, he he became more inflationary, but very anti-inflation. He was a Wall Street guy. He believed that even slight inflation brings about asset bubbles because mm-hmm. he had seen that on Wall Street. And um, so the appointments by Eisenhower showed were, were were ideologically driven. They they weren't driven by public choice reasons by you know Eisenhower wanting to expand his own. Um, Power or 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 to put Republicans in, in certain positions, he wanted certain Republicans. He wanted those Republicans who shared his vision of, of um, inflation and 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 the um, ability to to rein in inflation. He wanted them to have that sort of uh, inclination and capability. And there was also three three recessions under Eisenhower, mm-hmm. and this is the second instance in which you can see his ideology coming through. Um, and in um, his second term, there were two, um, and he was – during those two recessions, Eisenhower uh, stood firmly against any countercyclical cyclical policy. And um, in fact, during the depth of the second recession, 59 and 60, he said – he says, I don't believe for one moment that the public works that have been suggested – and they were suggested by his own – cea at that point um he said i don't believe for one moment that that will do any good in in curing the recession Mm -hmm. the public works so um this was an example or an episode in which ideologies trumped the uh the public choice trap um meaning that you know people People act on, as, as Rothbard points out in a number of, of his articles, people act on more than just their narrow self-interest as measured by monetary gain or the, um, the accumulation of power. They act for ideological reasons, and this includes politicians and um I had not read uh, or hadn't remembered that I read a, a few Rothbard articles on, on the 19th century political parties, which were highly ideological. Mm-hmm. And it was rooted in, 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 in the conflicting religions and cultures uh, in, in the U.S. And so, so my point, I guess, is that the um, Republican Party it was probably the last gasp of, of ideological difference between Democrats and the Republicans in, in the post-war world. Um, this conflict over ideology. Um, of course, the Keynesians won. Um, when, when Kennedy took over, uh, the new economics came in and the Republicans sort of conceded um, uh, their, their anti-inflationist position and, and took up sort of the Keynesian cudgels, but uh, w- you know, not being as, um, uh, as radical in, in their belief that there was a Phillips curve, that that, that was a menu of choices, that which allowed um, the, the Fed and other policymakers to trade off uh, unemployment against inflation.
1: Well, yeah, I'm, with folks. If you're watching the video version of this, we'll flash up a, a graphic. But I'm just looking. So Eisenhower was in office from '53 through '61, and just to give folks an idea, so the, the the year-over-year increase in the consumer price index it peaked. Uh, in early 51, it looks like about 9.6% or so, you know, so obviously the the seeds of that had been sown before he came into office and then it went all the way down and actually in early uh, 1955 was negative, like negative 0.6, meaning, you know, year over year prices had fallen and then it popped back up again, but it only maxed out at like three and a half or 3.6% and then it's just low. And then after Eisenhower's out of office, like you say, Joe, there's just this upward trend with each successive peak being higher than the prior one, you know, culminating right at the you know, 1979, 1980, 80, uh, yeah. where it got really out of hand, up up at like 14.6% at, at the peak year over year. So, again, that, like just showing – of course, it's not that literally Eisenhower went into the Federal Reserve every day and, you know, said how many $100 bills are they printing, but right. certainly you can see coinciding with his administration – you know, because during World War II, there were, of course, once the price controls were lifted and it was legally allowed to reflect what was going on, reality, there were huge bursts of consumer price inflation. And then, yeah, under Eisenhower, those kind of got tamped out of the system. And then once he left, they started slowly creeping back in.
2: Yeah. One uh, interesting point I, I bring this up in my article. Uh, in 1950, Ludwig von Mises wrote an article in which he, um, uh, criticized very severely the the, uh, Truman administration. He just said the administration, didn't use Truman's name, but Mm. he was obviously referring to Truman as um, institutionalizing huge deficits and um, the uh, um, financing of those deficits by um, massive increases in the money supply. And then in 1958, he wrote an article in which he said that the the administration had long ago – Put aside or, or move, moved away from that approach to, mm-hmm. to to monetary and fiscal policy. They they abandoned the um, inflation the inflationism uh, that had had been uh, holding sway in the early fifties. So you know even Mises recognized this and and praised and he, and he mentioned the Federal Reserve and the administration uh, as as being um, the, the the party parties to this anti inflationist. Um, movement.
1: Yeah. And it's uh, so, so like, I guess, but one big takeaway what you're saying, like the connection of ideology, just to make sure people aren't getting lost within the details, is that in the standard Keynesian framework, it's it's more like here's the choices where we're like technocrats, whereas you're actually stressing the ideological factor. Is that a fair way of putting it? Yes.
2: In, in fact, Mises says that. Um, that that's really the only factors that are. That's the only factor involved. That that it's you're either an anti-inflationist or you're a, a pro-inflationist, and, and and pro-inflationism is an ideology. The you know the, the the Keynesianism, the Keynesian doctrine that camouflages this is 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 just that it's camouflage. The the the, the theory is just there to support. The, the pre-existing ideology of 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 inflationism, which existed in the nineteenth century and 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 before Keynes wrote, certainly in nineteen thirty-six. Mm-hmm. That, that's something that I think what you said earlier
1: in this episode or interview, Joe, dovetails with this. But let me just make sure I'm not assuming, because I remember when I first encountered public choice theory as an undergrad, I recoiled from it. I even went up to Richard Ebeling, who was teaching the class on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it was a, a broader, you know, it was a comparative systems or something. I don't remember right, exactly right. What, we were, what it was, but that was like the topic of that week or something. And I was complaining about, it, and I thought it was too, it was too uh, devoid of, I guess, ideology. Like you say, that I said, uh, like, no, the the reason the public supports protectionism is because they think it's actually good for the country. They're wrong. But, yep. like, in other words, and I, I said, because like, otherwise, like, you'd, if it was just purely a matter of, oh, concentrated benefits, dispersed costs, like, you'd see the, the redheads would have some, you know, subsidy program for redheads that's paid for by non-redheads or something. And you don't see that because you couldn't convince the public that that makes any sense. But instead, you can do, like, oh, i got to protect auto workers. And so that's why you can have tariffs on Japanese cars and things, even though, like, the underlying logic is to say, but, like, why is it that some inefficient programs work and others don't? It's because the public has been sold. This is good yes. for the country. And like, I thought that's at least some versions of the public choice analysis were just like l- overlooking that as, Oh, that's an irrelevant detail. What's really driving. It's almost like the Marxist, how they say, it's the underlying, you know, fundamentals that drive things, and then the ideology right. just gets added up. productive out, forces, then, right? Yeah, whereas Mises, just, the, the ideology
2: same. is a superstructure. But yeah, Mises would say, that, well, Rothbard certainly would say the same thing that the ideology is a superstructure, for, but but what's driving it is, is is power. The ideology of power versus the ideology of liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Rothbard also points out that um, if you really took public choice theory seriously, I mean, rational ignorance would prevent everyone from voting. I mean, why should anybody vote if they know their vote doesn't count? Um, and so, I mean, that in itself is, is is sort of a performative contradiction in public choice. Um, you have to have ideology drives people to vote. The, the pure pleasure of pushing that button against, Whoever you hate, whether it's Trump or Hillary Clinton, um, that's driven by ideas. That, that's that's a system of ideology. Now, there might be contradictions in, in the average person's systems of ideology and and, and, and in many people's uh, ideology. But but it, it, it is ideas that drive it. And um, certainly the pursuit of monetary gain is one of the goals that people are aiming at. But there are other goals beyond that, and uh, that that's – those goals are, are are emerge from from one's worldview or ideology.
1: It's funny you say that, Joe, because I remember it was actually at NYU one of the early seminars. Uh, I don't remember if it was the, the Austrian colloquial. I think it was actually. Maybe you even saw the talk. But yeah. some guy came and gave a talk saying how yeah, there's like a fundamental problem in public choice theory that it's got a bunch of results that are great, like the median voter theorem mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. like. Oh, you know, why is it during the primaries the candidates are real? Radical. and then when they go into the general election, all of a sudden they're different guys or gals. And you know, you yeah. can explain that and it, that's a pretty good explanation. Okay, yeah, they're appealing to the median if they go too far one way, then they lose other people who stay home mm-hmm. or switch sides. Okay, fair enough. And that's why in the general election, they're two sides of the same coin because you know what what gain is there to be more radical? that sort of thing. But fundamentally, like you say, the the framework they use to explain that type of stuff like its greatest hits, If you apply it to the individual voter and said, no, no, it's all a matter of cost, benefit and rationality and economic logic applied to politics, then, yeah, why does anyone bother to go vote? Because you know the chance of my vote affect, you know, mattering Mm -hmm. in my state for the Electoral College. And then it's that's not enough. It's not just that your state has to come down to a margin of one so that you voting makes the difference between which way your electoral votes go. But the candidates, the margin of, you know, the, the winning candidate versus the loser has to be small enough that your state was also decisive otherwise that's it wouldn't right. matter and right, you know what so right. like the chance of your vote you like there's a better chance of you dying driving to the polls um so and the way they and the, and the speaker you know the guy or the guy coming and giving the paper was just like going through how the public choice theorists kind of just ignored that like well okay yeah that's that's an issue and but but what we're saying is <laughs> <laughs> it was like, you know, it's that's kind of a big deal if, like, the whole underpinning of your theory doesn't really explain what's necessary to make this whole system go.
2: Um, Rothbard points out that um, the, um, the liberal Michael Kinsey, the liberal journalist, mm-hmm. when Buchanan won the Nobel Prize for obviously his contributions to public choice, Kinsey did a public choice analysis of, of all of that and said, why, you know, he, he applied it to, to Buchanan and his research program to the Swedish Nobel committee. Um, why is it not applicable throughout, to everyone, including oh, the public choices? That's very clever. Yeah. The public choices themselves. And, and I think Jenny Roback who was an economist at GMU and a student of, of um, Buchanan's shot back or uh, wrote a letter to, to the uh, periodical that Kinsey published his article in and said, well, he, she, she said this is you know very nasty but i mean it's, it doesn't mean it's not true though um and so yeah i i uh, all, see, all the whole rule versus the, the the idea of rules goes back to henry simons who uh, was a sh- early chicago economist was milton Friedman's mentor in monetary economics um and he he is also also um was uh, um, James Buchanan, the the founder of Public Choice, took his inspiration from Simons, who talked about having monetary rules. Um, and th- so, uh, the, the the whole Public Choice um, movement co- comes, a- 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 and the rules themselves are, are sort of emanations of, of Public Choice. Mm-hmm. Well, what's
1: what's interesting too as I don't know if you. Let me try at least get across my perspective and then see if you understand what I'm saying, Joe. What's interesting is there is a sense in which to the extent that those alleged trade like in other words, there's nothing like intrinsically crazy about what they're saying that oh yeah right. if if the public genuinely believed it was just off the table that the Fed is not going to ever tolerate 12 percent inflation if that's was you know necessary in the short run to get inflation right. or, sorry unemployment down, then it won't be necessary too. To have that much, you know what I mean. If the, if the so that's the interesting thing. It's sort of like saying by by making this credible threat that oh no, we're tough guys and we don't care what happens to unemployment. We're going to make sure the dollar is protected. Then the market doesn't call your bluff, as it were, if they really believe. And so if that's the view, well then what's what's a better commitment than to say ideologically like no, that's that's theft. That would be stealing purchasing power from the people that you you're not allowed to do that. You know, or like the Fed, you know. Of course, gold is money. Like, what, what do you mean fiat money? That's 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 an abomination. That kind of a monetary policy regime, you mm-hmm. would have, you know, definite rules. That would definitely be rules based policy. If you say no, we're not allowed to do that because it would be immoral moral and a crime. That's certainly a stronger commitment than just, oh, yes, yeah, so and so published this DSGE model in the AER in you know 2007 and look at the regression analysis and we had three stars in this table like who cares about that whereas if it's like no this is a moral right, you know, legal right. issue that seems like a stronger commitment so it's it's almost like with the uh, you know would you rather live next door to someone who's a utilitarian and says oh it's on the table that I might you know eat you tomorrow I just choose not to because, in the long run, I get more utility from from not you know eating my neighbor because I might get right, caught, right. And that, as opposed <laughs> to someone who's just like, oh no, I couldn't do that; that'd be disgusting, and I would feel horrible because I have a conscience. That's I'm it's right, you know, it's that sort of anyway. You want to respond to that?
2: Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I think that's a great point, Bob. Um, and that's, I guess, the takeaway from my article that um, if you if you believe that, as Eisenhower voiced on a number of occasions, that inflation is theft. That it, that's that's it's stealing from certain groups in the population, um, and and if you go back to the 19th century, I mean that was the view of of Thomas Jefferson and 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 Jackson, um, Andrew Jack, President Andrew Jackson, and that's how they they respectively you know brought brought down the, the two uh, bank U, banks of the U.S., which were the first quasi-central banks in, in U.S. history. Um, the privileged banks and and um they they, they uh, were inflationary so I, I I completely agree that um having sort of an ideological um reason uh that strongly held operates with the credibility of of, of a rule I mean mm-hmm. it shows a commitment and and of course that was commitment was followed through with um jackson bringing down the bank and then and then instituting sort of a um the, the his pet banks in which only gold was held by the federal government in those banks yeah something i didn't know about jackson until i was older
1: is that like the way i i think i even wrote a term paper uh-huh. in high school yeah it was in high school in my american history class or something uh criticizing him like like i thought he was anti-commerce <laughs> i thought he was like a you know right. some rube who just didn't understand modern industrialization or finance or something and look well, he's against banking and ooh, new new York's scary but no i mean uh, uh, for, of course from you know more, my modern vantage point as you can imagine joe i realized no what he was saying is he was against inflation and you know dishonest bankers sort of you know living off of the produce of the of the farmers right um you know he would do stuff like a campaign stops for those who don't know like like hold up gold coins and say this is Genuine money, you know, not that paper that the people in New York push around. You know, words of that effect. But what I didn't realize, so not only did he get killed the second bank of the United States, but he literally paid off the federal debt. And for people at home, I don't yes. just mean he balanced the budget and ran a surplus. I mean he literally paid off I, the debt. <laughs> so that's kind of a uh, you know just showing that you know those two things tend to go hand in
2: hand. Yes. That
1: you know that commitment to a strong currency and an aversion to debt.
2: Um, and that's a, a very interesting point. In his second term, I mean, there's a parallel with Eisenhower. Eisenhower wanted to pay down the debt, I mean, continually pay down debt, run, run surpluses every year, um, regardless of whether we had a recession or not. Uh, and he, to some extent, he, he, he succeeded, but he, he, overall, he, he did not. But the point, again, was that this was held very strongly as an ideology by Eisenhower. Uh, And he even was willing to sacrifice another part of his ideological program, his so-called modern republicanism, because he wanted small increases in in education, um, in, in highway construction and so on. And he said that because he held the, well, because economic historians point out, but because he held the um, anti-inflationist ideology so strongly, he realized that that would impinge on the budget. It would make it less likely for him to run surpluses. So he abandoned his so-called modern Republican movement, which was sort of an anti-old right, anti-Taft movement. Um, so uh, I think that uh, – so the, t- the takeaway in all this is to, to, to supercharge American politics with ideology again, to have very ideological parties. Now, that's beginning to happen with the Republican Party. Unfortunately, it's not happening on, e- on economic matters as much
1: mm-hmm. as,
2: as it is with, with, with you know, social issues.
1: Mm-hmm. But I think it's a, a,
2: a step in the right direction.
1: I hesitate to ask this next question Joe because I just know how our critics are going to frame it but you know what they're going to say bad stuff about us anyway so why don't we just <laughs> uh, It's is it a coincidence that the two presidents we've been highlighting were both you know celebrated military generals?
2: Um, I don't I don't know but may, like Maybe I said, this so. will now be excerpted yeah. to say, you know, Mises yeah. Institute scholars yeah. favor, you
1: know, military juntas. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, you know, if just I guess one explanation could be, you know, they're they're strong, take charge men. And that's why they can come into a situation and not be cowed by the academics telling them, oh, no, that would lead to disaster. Like they they've learned to identify who's giving me good counsel and who's not, you know, because you have to know that out in the battlefield or otherwise you're dead. Right,
2: right i mean that that, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense um you you also i mean this is also going to draw criticism from our critics mm-hmm. uh and that is you know trump became, seemed to be a very strong president i mean he he made a lot of strategic errors in in, in carrying out his program and I, and I think he was confused and he did a lot of bad things economically but i i think trump w- I, I think you need someone who is ideological or at least sounds ideological and can reach the masses with, with, with uh, let's call it a fierce ideology. I mean, I think that's what has to happen. The ideology has to be held very fiercely. Yeah.
1: I mean, the obvious example staring us in the face is Javier Malay in yes. Argentina. You know, that, that's whatever one wants to say about him and whether you think he's really a plant from the WEF, although people have not said that as much given the talk he just gave to them but still yeah clearly he did not run on a very moderate tiptoeing around and well you know i've consulted the economic literature and it looks like this regression says that you know we can increase gdp growth by two points that's not what he was saying right. you know he, he was he had pretty fiery bombastic language to come in and you know say give me a shot i can turn this turn this franchise around yeah so he interspersed
2: his his um economic program with ideology. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that was good. I mean, that that, that strengthens the uh, the program and, and it strengthens the appeal of the program to 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 the voters. Yeah, that, it
1: dovetails, what you're saying dovetails. I recently, Joe, went over to, it was called the ARC, what does that stand for? The Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, I okay. think is what that acronym is. It's Jordan Peterson and friends tried to establish like this rival entity that you know, would sort of give the free society version of what the WF is doing. Like to, maybe that's not right. the way they'd put it, but that's one element of what it was. And that, and something they kept a lot of the speakers kept stressing is how the collectivists have a better story. They've been telling people, you know what I mean? Like they're telling young people, like, why is it that just Hollywood is so easily anti-capitalist and the entrepreneur is always the bad guy. And, and you know, the, and it's partly they were, they were saying because they, they just are good at telling a, a better story Whereas the right tends to, you know, at least historically has tended to just say, "Well, yeah, but we have better facts." And what do you? No, no, I can. But if the other side feels like they're swept up in this grand narrative of justice and helping the downtrodden, you coming along, you know, with some statistics—that's, you know, you're you're fighting fire with something else.
2: Yeah, I I agree. I I think the Democratic Party recognized much earlier than the Republican Party that there's nothing wrong with being highly ideological Mm -hmm. and 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 taking extreme positions and i i think that 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 helped them but but it also opened the door to uh, an uh, to the republican party becoming extremely ideological and that ideology being something that i think is deep deeply ingrained in american psyches Mm -hmm. um and the you know the ideology of 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 individualism and of, of the importance of the family unit, I I, I think the Republicans are on the cusp of of if they play their cards right of creating a mass ideological movement. And I, I think you know, Trump isn't consistent consistently ideological at all, of course, and uh, so he's not the person to do that. But but he's he's. Ideological enough that 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 he's you know appealing to to to, to this sentiment. Yeah,
1: if we had like a candidate who was start with Trump and then have him read a bunch of books, then that's the guy. <laughs> yeah, that's the guy. <laughs> um, so, w- w- sure. Why don't we just offend everybody? Let's go for it. What about? I. Th- it sounds like what you're saying connects with at least one essay that I know Rothbard wrote about. You know, hating the state, and the idea was. Rothbard, I don't want to put words in his mouth, so let me just say this and then you respond if you think that I got what Rothbard's position yeah. was, correct? That Rothbard respected and admired somebody like a Frederick Bastiat or a Thomas Paine more than, uh, let's say, a David Friedman, even though on paper, Friedman is an anarcho-capitalist and those other guys were, you know, call him minarchists or classical liberals, whatever label you want to use. And so one might have originally supposed mm-hmm. Rothbard would... Like Friedman's work more than those earlier guys, but that's not the case because you know they were burning with passion for liberty, whereas in Friedman's analysis it was more like, well, all things considered, it looks like the most efficient outcome is to do this, and da, 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 you know, as opposed to this is a, a you know moral injustice and abomination if the state were to impose rent <laughs> control. So maybe I'm being a bit bombastic, but do you – anyway, do you want to respond
2: to that sort of – Yeah, yeah, no, I agree agree with you. I I think Rothbard liked the guys, even if they were just minarchists, that had a visceral hatred of the state. I mean Mm -hmm. you know, he wrote the Do You Hate the State was the title of that article that you're referring to, Mm -hmm. whereas um, um, David Friedman is is a utilitarian and a public choicer and um, a cost-benefit analyst who thinks that uh, unbalanced – the, the the benefits exceed the cost of of having an anarcho capitalist society. So yeah, Roth, Rothbard. I I think that all ties into Rothbard's strategy, mm-hmm. which is a, to a, to to have someone who can short circuit the elites with their message, and that's why he liked he liked um, McCarthy for that reason. He didn't like his ends. He thought McCarthy was just a Cold War guy who who took to, to, to uh, you know went too far. Um, according to the establishment, in his anti-communism, um, but but Rothbard turned that on his head and said that he loved his means, his means of directly appeal, but he didn't like his ends. Mm. His ends was were, were, were to fight the Cold War on, on all fronts, including the domestic front. And Rothbard thought the Cold War was just you know basically started by the U.S. trying to contain "quote unquote" the Soviet Union but he liked what McCarthy did with a very small group of, of advisors and um, using TV for the first time in a way that had not been used before. So he, he liked his method, his strategy, um, the means he used, but, but, but rejected McCarthy's ends. And, you know, I can't repeat that enough Rothbard because McCarthy was sort of a, a moderate Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: just maybe in the last five or so minutes that we got here, Joe, can you comment and i think this dovetails with the broader themes of what we've been discussing can you maybe talk about modern monetary theory mmt and perhaps i know you've written like on the greenbacker movement and the, you know the, they're not literally the same thing but there's a lot of overlap and just it it seems like there's this growing chorus of people it it, it dovetails to with what you're saying like this alleged independence of the central bank from the federal government and say from the MMT camp, like they're just viewing it as the same accounting, you know, it's just like one division of the same corporation doing stuff, something else. And that, you know, that's in their mind, you know, taxation, it's certainly not that the government needs to tax in order to raise revenue. They have a printing press and I've just seen them appealing to more and more people. And I, you know, I think we're getting close to the point at which the public's just going to say, yeah, if the government wants to pay for something, just run the printing press. And if prices rise too much,
2: then maybe they'll have to back off, but otherwise let's just see what happens. You know, there's some interesting um, uh, observations I, I can make on that. In the 1960s, there were uh, hearings held um, in Congress, um, and they brought in some pretty famous economists. And it was on the independence of the Fed, and both Friedman and, and Harry Johnson, who was a quasi-monetarist and a very famous monetary economist, both said that, you know, this is anti-democratic, having an independent central bank. Um and Friedman, uh, for, 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 for a long time, simply wanted to collapse the Fed into a, a computer in the Treasury that would spit out the change in the quantity of money. Um, so th- that's the first thing. The other thing is that it's, it's better to – look, the, the Fed is political. The Fed does knuckle under to, to pressure from, from the various administrations. Let's, all, let's make it um, pellucidly clear – let, 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 let's show that in fact, it's the politicians that are causing inflation with, with, with their spending. And so the way to do that is, is to just get rid, of, get rid of the central bank and allow the treasury to simply print the money that, 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 that the, you know, if the government's going to run a deficit that it wants to finance by money printing instead of the circuitous way of doing it through a federal reserve system that goes through the credit markets and causes the business cycle just have the, the Treasury print up the money and spend it on, on, on those goods that, and resources that the government wants to seize directly. In fact, one, I remember Friedman writing that he'd rather have um, a, a deficit of 400, this is back in the old, of $400 billion financed by the printing of money than a balanced budget at 800 billion, at uh, twice the... Uh, mm. um, and, and Rothbard has made similar statements that um th- there's really no no difference between it's really spending that is is the tax and 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 that he'd rather have a he'd rather cut taxes and have a bigger um deficit than 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 to rate than to rate than to raise taxes to close the deficit
0: mm-hmm.
2: because if you cut taxes then the natural thing is is you know people poor deficits you can you can you can. Uh, there's a reason for for cutting spending. So um, I'm not against. I'm. I certainly would think it's a superior way of, of of printing money to have have it done openly by the Treasury, so that we can see that these this is the result of government spending programs, and that the way to stop inflation is to cut spending.
1: Okay, so let me just repeat that back. So your point, I take it, Joe, is you're saying right now. The the Fed really is monetizing deficits. And I and yes. I was pointing this out like during the QE programs, it was like, oh, that seems like a coincidence. That right when the Obama administration <laughs> has four years in a row of trillion dollar deficits plus, the, the Fed says, you know what, we've just independently come to the conclusion it's time for some QE, you know. <laughs> and yeah. Like, yeah. What a coincidence. <laughs> um, and so your point is rather than going through this shell game where it's not as clear what's going where technically the Fed's not allowed to directly buy government right. issued debt the, you know, the, the private market needs to buy lend the money to uncle Sam first, but then the fed is sitting right there in the wings to absorb it from, you know, the primary dealers or whatever. So it's basically the same thing. Just do it all openly. And that way it's crystal clear. If price inflation gets high and the public saying what's going on is because of unions or greedy corporations that might, might be easier for everyone to say, no, it's because the government decided to, you know, spend money on that new fighter jet. That's, yeah that's partly
2: why eggs cost so much now and, and and you can throw that and there's a direct link between the voters and those who are the inflators you you can throw them out of office mm-hmm. um again and and this ties into having a very ideological um view of inflation that is theft and and that and you know and that 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 should active or get people more active uh and um you know, stir, stir up, stir up their their um, dis- dislike f- for for those who are who are, are you know running the inflationary printing process.
1: Okay, well, good. Yeah, so I think we've covered all the bases in this episode, yeah. Joe. That we praised military dictatorships <laughs> and said the MMTers are right. That's the way people can, if they want to do a hit piece on us, they can uh, try to summarize what we said. Now, joking aside, uh, thank you. Uh, my guest this week, folks, has been Joe Salerno. Among other hats, he's the academic vice president of the Mises Institute. Joe, thanks so much for all the work you do and your time with us today. Thank you, Bob. It was my pleasure. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.
0: Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.